This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, tech girl, Miriam Joie. Brought to you by Audible. Stay tuned for a special offer at the end of the show. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joie, and today is Thursday, November 12th, 2020. And I have two guests on the show today. I have Finbar Moynihan and Nick Gray on. Finbar is with MediaTek and Nick is with Fandroid, one of our favorite Android publications. Hi, folks. Hey, Miriam. Good to be here. How's it going? Thanks for having me back. So, Finbar, MediaTek Summit just happened this week. Lots of great news. A new Dimensity chip with 5G for more affordable 5G on smartphones. New Chromebook chips as well. You want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, it was very exciting. Um, it was a, you know exactly a year ago when we had our uh, summit face-to-face uh, last year in San Diego. Um, so obviously, it was a little different this year being in the virtual world um, that we're all living in right now. But it was certainly very exciting, I think, to look back after a year, you know, see all the progress we've made uh, in some of the market segments, uh, particularly on 5G, as you mentioned, because it was at the summit last year that we introduced our first 5G solution, the Dimensity 1000. And as we've gone through 2020, we've introduced multiple other members of the family, including the new Dimensity 700 family member at the event this week, which is aimed really at bringing 5G into more of the mainstream tiers of uh, 5G devices. So we're very excited about that. Um, you know, democratizing 5G, bringing 5G more broadly to, to different price points. And then, as as you mentioned, we also introduced at the event uh, two new solutions for more high-end uh, Chromebooks, uh, which, again, has been a very hot topic this year with all of the homeschooling, home education. Um, you know, demand for Chromebooks has been off the charts this, this year so far. Yeah, I bet. And we all got Chromebooks from Lenovo, the, the IdeaPad Chromebook uh, Duet, I believe. Correct. And I'm super impressed with that little thing. I'm a big Chromebook fan and user. And of course, I'm used to like, you know, pretty heavy lifting type work, even on my Chromebooks, including like, you know, generally a Chromebook pixel of some kind has been my go-to. And I was really pleasantly surprised at how well Chrome OS ran on that uh, MediaTek equipped device. Mostly I wasn't concerned about the chip. I was concerned about the RAM. Four gigs is a little small for Chromebook, but that device is $279. So wow, right? Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's it's exciting. And, and you know, we've seen a lot of success with the, the Chromebook platform, not just with Lenovo, but with multiple other brands, Acer, Asus, even HP now is also shipping Chromebooks based on MediaTek's platforms. And I think, um, you know, that First starting point, I think, has given us a lot of confidence in the ability of the MediaTek ARM-based SOCs to, to deliver a really good user experience for, for Chromebooks. And I think when we look forward, I mean, we're talking about introducing 7 nanometer, 6 nanometer new ARM cores in the, in the new SOCs. We'll really see, I think, a, a big step up in performance there as well going into next year and, and beyond. Yeah, and you guys have been doing chips for Chromebooks for about a year and a half now? Actually, we've been doing them for longer. Um, I think the current products like the uh, Lenovo one that Miriam mentioned is based on our 8183, which is really, mm-hmm. I think, the second 
uh, generation of Chromebook chips that we've launched. But I think that that product brought some of the advantages of, you know, quad core, big CPU, um, you know, 12 nanometer technology, um, some other advantages that I think probably speaks to the to the performance. Uh, but I think it's really in 2020 that we've seen the the volume starting to take off and, and we're very optimistic about the, the projections for 2021. Well, and one question I had compared to, you know, the main competitor within, within the space for chipsets, which is Intel, and a lot of the times within the budget segment, we're seeing some of their Celeron chipsets and the cheaper Chromebooks. But from what I've seen, uh, these chipsets here, especially, specifically the one in the Lenovo Duet, which I played with at CES, and I, we actually gave it a Best of CES award because it's that good. Um, this actually seems to have a little bit more power and oomph, even though it's still quite a cheap device uh, for this form factor. Um, can you speak as to you know what your guys's you know approach is on that end, and then the new chipsets, which are you know significantly more powerful for Chromebooks? Yeah, I, th- I think we bring a lot of the experience from the mobile world, Nick, into this space. You know, obviously, MediaTek's been well known for delivering, you know, low power, high performance uh, mobile SOCs, you know, taking advantage of the latest ARM cores, taking advantage of the integration that we can bring, you know, TSMC process technology for for leading edge nodes. I think a lot of that know-how we've really been able to marshal forward into the, the Chromebook space. I mean, of course, given all our experience with Android as well, I mean, the fact that all the Android apps run on Chromebooks is, is a very powerful user feature as well, I think, that, that benefits us. Um, and I think, particularly, I think, with the, the growth in Chromebooks, I mean, we're obviously, it started a lot from the education sector, but we are seeing growth in consumer. So, you know, gaming, video, multimedia, you know, video conferencing, those kind of applications become more important. And again, we can bring a lot of that multimedia experience from the mobile world to bear on on the Chromebook experience. So I think it's I think it's that heritage from the low power, high performance mobile, um, and then leveraging that into obviously a different form factor and a different use case that that is the Chromebooks that that helps. I think. Yeah, I think I think this is pretty exciting to me. Like the performance on this little duet is. I was really surprised. I, I mean, I don't know why I went into, I think because of the specs again, not, not the processor so much, but the RAM. I was like, well, this is going to be, you know, like a basic Chromebook experience. But as I started using it, I was like, hmm. I mean, yeah, tabs are going to be an issue, like, because it's just, you need RAM for tabs. But I was just like, wow, this this is you know, rocking it. And uh, for the price, I mean, I just don't think anybody can touch this. You could probably sell this thing. I mean, Lenovo, I suppose, could probably sell this thing for $50 more with more RAM and, you know, kill two birds with one stone, basically. I think it's uh, it's exciting to me to see, you know, mobile chipsets slowly seeping into uh, the laptop two-in-one world, basically. You know, we've seen it with Qualcomm and Microsoft on the Surface Pro X and Windows. We've seen it now with Apple. We're going to discuss this later on the show with uh, the Apple Silicon-based Macs. And, you know, obviously you folks have found a really great, successful business case with Chromebooks. And I think we're going to continue seeing that cross-pollination. I mean, Chrome OS was designed from the get-go to be ARM-based. There's been a lot of Samsung Exynos-based Chromebooks in the past. I reviewed them back when I was at Engadget. So, you know, I think it's it's going to continue. Do you see a future where we see some, 
MediaTek chips in Windows PCs? I think that's an interesting an interesting topic, and it's certainly something you know we're we're looking at. I think in in general we are very excited with the whole move to ARM computing in the broadest sense of the word, right? And you know I think we continue to see innovation in mobile. I mean we talked a little bit at the event as well about our next generation uh, high end uh, Dimensity five G product that will be coming out, right? And you can see you know, they're all pushing in the same general direction, right? Taking advantage of, you know, the next generation process technology, six nanometer, the next generation ARM cores, you know, CA78. And with the high end of the 5G roadmap, it's pushing a lot of, you know, advanced CPU, GPU, ARM computing. A lot of that capability we're developing, you know, has absolute applicability into the broader ARM computing space, whether that's tablets, Chromebooks, or, or other form factors. Now, you know, there are some technical challenges uh, around Windows with drivers and graphics and stuff like that that have to be overcome. But I think the the future is certainly pointing to ARM playing a much larger role in that broad computing space than maybe it has in the past. For sure. I'm always joking and saying ARM all the things, right? It's like that meme. Yeah. Uh, because that's kind of where the world is going. And, and I I still to this day cannot believe that you know, Intel sold their X-Scale ARM division. It's like, you need to be in that space. (laughs) It doesn't matter what you do, you know? So, yeah, the whole market is shifting. And I think Intel's kind of, kind of lost the, the vision as to where mobile computing is going and relying more on, you know, the desktop and server side in order to drive their business where everyone else is shifting to the ARM roadmap for, for the near future and the far future as well. I think it's, I think exactly, Nick, I think it's a combination of ARM, but it's also, I think, a combination of, you know, if you look at what we do on the mobile space, right, all of the multimedia integration, camera, AI, all of these other features that were, you know, historically driven by smartphones, you know, those become more and more relevant for use cases that people want on their quote unquote computing devices as well, right? Whether it's Chromebooks, notebooks, or whatever. So I think that SOC multimedia architecture combined of course with arm and like i said the you know the advances of people like tsmc on the process technology i think there's kind of this perfect storm forming of of benefits to the user that can be brought with these kind of solutions so on these chips that were announced uh for chromebooks at the summit can you tell us roughly like what price points and performance levels you're aiming for uh, manufacturers to ship devices with here I mean, well, a lot of times, of course, the, you know, the end position of the product really depends on the OEM, right? I mean, there's a lot of flexibility with the industrial design, the form factor, even as you said, the memory choices, choices that they make. But clearly we see the new products, the 8192 and the 8195, you know, positioned at tiers above, you know, where let's say the existing products that we're shipping with MediaTek are. So, okay. it probably does bump up to the you know multi hundreds of dollars kind of price points. Of course, again, OEMs can make decisions around you know form factors, design, memory that'll change you know the trade off between performance and 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 features. Let's say, um, but I think the you know the aim here is really to kind of be able to span the whole range of of Chromebook offerings that that people are looking to bring out. Some maybe for education, but for consumer and for even into the enterprise class, they may have different performance requirements. For sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Can we talk about the Dimensity 700 a little bit? Sure. Because really, as you know, mobile, I mean, I'm a, definitely a big fan of Chromebooks, as I've mentioned, and I'm not going to say no to Chromebooks. They're definitely mobile devices, especially that Duet because it's a two-in-one. But my you know, phones are closer to my heart. And you know, we've seen very exciting that we've seen the Velvet from LG come on T-Mobile with a Dimensity 1000C chip. I actually got T-Mobile to send me a device, even though I already had two Velvets, both with Qualcomm's chips, uh, the Unlock European model and the AT&T-specific model. I wanted to experience the Dimensity 1000C, so T-Mobile finally sent me one. And you can't tell it apart from the competition. It is performs just as well. Not that I'm surprised, frankly, but... I just want to put it out there for the listeners. It is a really great chip and it works really well. In fact, I ran some benchmarks and, you know, benchmarks don't really mean anything, but it's nice to have some points of reference. You are killing it in machine learning Mm -hmm. and anything that's neural processing based right now uh, compared to Qualcomm. Yeah, no, that's been a big, big focus for us. And I think we're very happy with the kind of results we're seeing there. Uh, And certainly the Dimensity 1000 that's in the Velvet phone from LG you know, I think exemplifies obviously the best of what we've delivered so far this year. Obviously, you'll see more in the future with with new platforms. You know, and and thanks for the comments on the Velvet. I I do think LG did a phenomenal job with that series and that device as well. It's a it's a beautiful device. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it it really demonstrates as well as the AI. I mean, some really innovative firsts that we were able to demonstrate on the five G technology as well with T Mobile and with with LG. On their network, because you know, obviously, T-Mobile is pushing aggressively to standalone and carrier aggregation for for five G, and we've already demonstrated some of those capabilities on that device. Yeah. So, where do you place the Dimensity seven hundred? I guess it's at the bottom of your five G Dimensity range right now. You've got the eight hundred series, and then you got a very a bunch of a thousand series variations, right? So yes, uh, like the thousand, the Dimensity One Thousand is obviously towards the high end flagship part of of our, our roadmap. The Dimensity Eight Hundred and the Eight Twenty are sort of a step down from that kind of so call it high end. We actually introduced uh, in the middle of the year a Dimensity Seven Twenty, which is probably more for mid range. And mm-hmm. so this Dimensity Seven Hundred brings it down a little further again. So this is really what we're calling for the mainstream part of the market. And I think what we see. Uh, really happening as we kind of exit 2020 into 2021 is obviously in markets like China, 5G is going to become you know predominant. I mean, it's already you know the majority of phones shipping in China are now 5G enabled, and that trend is going to continue. So it's obviously going to hit all price points. In in 2021, I think we also see 5G coming into prepaid segments of markets right. in the US, and again, device price is very important for those consumers. So I think this new Dimensity 700 will be a very strong player in, in that part of the market. And in markets like Europe, you know, 5G is also sort of ramping up and taking off quite quite aggressively now. Uh, Nick, what's been your experience with the uh, various MediaTek-based phones this year? As you know, the, not that many have come to the U.S., and it's kind of been hard for a lot of outlets to get their hands on those specific devices. Uh, I've heard, as Miriam said, the, the Velvet with the MediaTek chipset is pretty good, um, and I everything that I've heard lines up with what Miriam was saying uh, that it you know matches or exceeds the 
the performance that we've saw on the Snapdragon 765G. So that's really good in my book. Honestly, I, I'm I'm really hoping that more will be coming to the U.S. because MediaTek always seems to have a price advantage over Qualcomm, and especially as we're moving into 5G and kind of democratizing the technology and trying to bring it into more consumers at a cheaper price point. MediaTek, I think, is going to be key in order to get the price points where the average consumer can go out and buy a, you know, two, three, four hundred dollar smartphone with 5G without having to spend a premium on it to get that next level uh, chipset. I think we'll see that as we go into 2021, Nick. There's this misconception that's kind of been in the market for a long time where there are Smartphones with MediaTek chipsets are at a disadvantage to smartphones with Qualcomm chipsets. But what we've seen from MediaTek the last two years is that they are on the same level, especially when you're looking at phones that are within $50 to $100 of each other. And typically the MediaTek devices are cheaper. So if you have the option to buy a MediaTek powered device versus a Qualcomm one, I say give it a shot because everything that I've used so far was exceeding my expectations every time I picked it up and used it. I think that the carriers in the U.S. are the problem, I think, uh, still. We complain about them a lot. But, you know, kudos to T-Mobile for jumping into this with, you know, open eyes and and an open mind and coming up with a, a really competitive device. I, I just feel like I wish I could say this about the others, right? And it's not really MediaTek's fault or the manufacturer's fault for not having these phones as much as at least in the US, as I'm talking here, it's more about the carriers like wanting to, to come along. So let's hope that uh, they come around, right? Sure. So Finbar, anything else that stood out from the summit that you think our audience will be excited about? You know, I think there's a lot of folks listening right now who are based in India and in the UK and Australia and parts of the world where I think the MediaTek devices are much more prevalent and available. Yeah. So what they should what should they be looking forward to other than I presume two hundred dollar ish five G phones with Dimensity seven hundred chips? Yeah. No, I, I think one of the objectives for the the summit is that we set out to with last year and again trying to reemphasize this year is to again continue to show people the breadth of technologies, the breadth of products, and the the, the breadth of capabilities that that media tech can enable. Right. So beyond you know the smartphones and the the Chromebooks. We talked a little bit about what we're seeing this year with our TV business, which has been quite strong. You know, some of some of the IoT products, uh, we've seen a lot of strength in Wi-Fi 6 uh, adoption uh, because of the pandemic and people working from home. Um, and then I think, you know, I spoke a little bit at the event as well about our activities on uh, AIoT. And I think that's a very exciting area of growth for the future because, a, it brings together all of the capabilities that we've been talking about from, from media tech. So the connectivity, AI, multimedia, the SOCs. But if we take a slightly different approach, we can enable a whole host of new customers to bring those technologies to their to their platforms. Like we we highlighted the June smart oven, for example, at the event that I think is yes. a, perfect, a perfect embodiment of like such a cool, innovative product. You know, and now powered by MediaTek's AIoT platform. You know, it's not a smartphone, it's not a Chromebook, but obviously it needs connectivity, it needs a voice assistant, it needs camera capability, it needs the AI processing for all of the cool things they're doing. So we're very proud of that example, and I think you'll see more of that coming on a on a global basis as well. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that. I mean, you know, so many smart speakers, so many 
true wireless earbuds, so many, you know, TVs and set-top boxes and uh, TV sticks, right? I mean, this is like a high demand thing that's just not going to end. And you're, you guys are in such a good position for that. It's just, it's just kind of amazing, really. Yeah, no, it, blow, it blows my mind. I mean, our, our CEO noted at the conference that, you know, we estimate now there's about 2 billion consumer devices a year powered by MediaTek solutions. It kind of blows my mind even when I think about it. Yeah, I think in a way the pandemic kind of helped, but at the same time, we kind of wish it wasn't like that, right? <laughs> 100% agree. <laughs> Well, listen, Finbar, thank you so much for uh, being on the show and, and telling us about uh, what happened at the summit. I think it was, a, it was a fun event, even though we couldn't all be together. So thanks for inviting me and others. It was great. No, thank you, Mariam. And it's always good to catch up and chat. And you know, hopefully we get to do this face-to-face the next time. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So Nick, what are your thoughts? Exciting? Everything's exciting. These this day and age, it's it's one of those weeks where it never seems to end. I thought it was like Sunday morning already. It's been so I'm much. honestly super excited about MediaTek stuff. Like that little Lenovo IdeaPad Chromebook duet is kicking ass, dude. Like I'm like, what? Like this feels so much better than any low end Chromebook I've ever used before. Well, and that's the thing. I got to play with it at CES when Lenovo announced it and they sent me one to review earlier this year. So this is this is the second one that I have. I'm actually going to be donating it to a local school just because I don't need Smart. a second one in the house. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, as far as the device goes, a lot of people, you know, think, oh, it's a it in all essence, for those who don't know what it is, it's it's a Chromebook tablet that has a detachable keyboard and a case on the back end with a kickstand. So it transforms from, and honestly, the whole thing together is cheaper than the Apple's magic keyboard for the iPad Pro. The entire thing with the keyboard, the tablet, and the stand is cheaper than Apple's magic keyboard, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so it it's one crazy. of those things, like if you're looking for a value device that can deliver a great experience as a tablet and also a miniature computer, it's a great device. And the performance, as you said, is phenomenal for the price. Yeah, it's pretty great. So speaking of, we have all kinds of news to talk about. Um, I want to start with the OnePlus Nord N10 5G. What a mouthful. I didn't think that OnePlus would ever name a phone like that. Hey, welcome to 2020, man, where expectations are thrown out the window. Uh, you know, I understand when it's the carriers kind of forcing down the naming, you know, upon the the phones like we're going to see when we discuss Nokia in a minute. And like we've seen with the TCL phone, right? Mm-hmm. Adding UW after everything and 5G after everything. Thank you so much, uh, Verizon. But I feel like, I don't know. I think that um, this phone is is a mixed bag. Have have you played with it? I have. It's sitting here on my desk, and you know, OnePlus sent it over probably about a week before the embargo lifted. And while I wanted to be excited about the phone just because of the price point, it took me five days to actually open the box and start and playing <laughs> with the phone and actually start to care. Because once you start looking at the features that the phone has to offer and the compromises that it makes, 
this is no longer the OnePlus that we've known and loved for since the very first OnePlus One. I mean, absolutely, the, they've always set the standards, they're the bar really high as far as your expectations, and have for them for the most part, besides one or two devices within what is it seven years now that we've had OnePlus devices. There's only been a handful, not even a handful, two or three that haven't met expectations. And this is going on the list for me. I yeah, mean, there's absolutely there's a lot to like if you are on extremely tight budget, but when you consider that the OnePlus Nord, which launched what, two and a half, three months ago, yeah. is only fifty euro more than this. It, it that's is the thing. A substantially it is, it better is a phone. Vastly better phone. Vastly is the word it's I use. It's not even in reviews. the same ballpark. It's ridiculous. Exactly. And for a fifty euro price difference, there's like they should have just gotten that phone and knocked off a couple features to build this phone for fifty euro less. Not not given us this device. It's this is it's not the OnePlus that we know and love. No, 100%. So I reviewed this for both Hot Hardware, which is more technical review, and for Geek Spin, which is more lifestyle review. I encourage you to read the reviews. The, the links will be in the show notes. But my takeaway is identical to Nick's. I went into it open-minded. I was like, okay, look, let's give it a chance, right? I, I really need to spend time with this thing because I'm going to review it twice. So I did. And immediately, you know, this is, to me, this just feels like an Oppo phone with OnePlus branding. Not that there's anything wrong with that, or a Vivo phone, or a Realme phone. It's basically does not have that that OnePlus DNA anymore, other than Oxygen OS. And there's a bunch of issues here. Uh, the f- the first thing for me that that kind of bothers me is that, as you said, the Nord, the the original Nord, is basically just an eight or an eight T, right? Like a a OnePlus pseudo flagship uh, with a seven sixty five G in it, basically. Right. Yeah. The, the only concessions it makes, it still has OIS on the main camera. It still has that Sony IMX five eight six that is still in the eight T and the eight today. Mm-hmm. And it has like up to twelve gigs of RAM, super fast, everything. And the only thing you kind of give up on, in my opinion, on the original Nord is plastic mid frame, which you don't notice really. But I wish they'd done a metal one and the mono speaker, which is kind of meh. That's it. Everything else is pretty much like a OnePlus 8 or 8T. Great display, OLED, under-display fingerprint, all the good stuff. So I expected that it would be slightly detuned from there, but not the kind of detune we're talking about here. We're talking about, so the the big thing that doesn't make this a OnePlus, to me, is the lack of uh, the alert slider, which, yep. frankly, I never use, but it's good to have, and it's there, and I like the fact that it's there because it really feels like a OnePlus to it's, me. It's that distinguishing hardware feature that no other device besides an iPhone has. Yeah, it's the attention to detail. Yeah. And and you don't have, that's the whole thing. The whole attention to detail on that N10 5G just doesn't exist. And plastic build through and through, every, even the back panel is fake, you know, full glass, sorry. And it feels that way. It feels like it, picks up fingerprints, feels slippery. It's a slightly bulkier phone than the Nord as well, bigger, thicker. I would say battery life is good. I I think that's the one redeeming factor. Battery life is good and performance is technically good as well. I mean, nah, no. For I disagree. For the price point, performance is good. It's not going to blow anybody no, out. No, because the Nord exists for $50 more. And the Nord 
just run circle around this. That's but the, here's the thing: the Nord is the exception to the rule because the Nord is the only phone at that price point that performs that well. If you look at other 450 euro devices, the Nord is the king, and so you can't like so. This could be the second or third best device within that price category as far as performance goes. And just yeah. just because there's one other device that performs better, that doesn't mean everything else is crap. I know, but for my again, personal opinion. attention to detail. One yeah. of the expectations of a OnePlus phone is to be faster than normal for the kind of chip it runs. And that's not the case here. Although we only have, don't have much references because we don't have any other Snapdragon 690 5G phones to compare to. But yeah, so I mean, as far, as far as performance goes, it's roughly the same about as the Snapdragon 720. It's about 5... 720, per- 730, yeah. Yeah, it's about 5% off of that. When I run the benchmarks and I see the delta between the Nord benchmarks and the Nord feel, how fast it feels, mm-hmm. and then I run the benchmarks on the N10 5G and compare that to the, how it feels, that delta is dif- very different. Is, is very different, yeah. Yeah, so I was expecting that delta to be bigger, right? I was yeah. expecting OnePlus is going to pull some magic out of its whatever bag <laughs> it's magic hat it's yeah. bag of magic and no that's not the case which is why i'm disappointed with the performance and so one thing that puts this into context a little bit more is that there is the pixel 4a which is available yes. in the u.s at 350 dollars, which is a ridiculously mm-hmm. low price and we don't know the pricing yet for the nord n10 in the u.s it's supposed to be coming later this year we don't have a date. We don't have pricing for that yet. But based off of their European to U.S. pricing differences between the 8 and the 8T, this is probably going to be a $400 device. And when you have yeah. the Pixel 4a at $50 cheaper, you buy that phone every day of the week over this phone. Uh, 100%. Battery life is better. The only thing that's worse on the Pixel 4a, I would say, is the display. The display on this phone is actually decent where the one on the pixel 4a is like eh but as far as cameras go it blows it out of the water See, it's interesting because i don't i don't agree with that display thing at all like i think the display on the nord n10 5g is a very very good ips display yes i'm with you on that um the 90 hertz is really nice but oh my god it is it is when you scroll on that at 90 hertz, it's a lot like the Poco phones at 120, like the, the X3 NFC. It's, it's amazing how much jitter and jiggles you see. It's really bad. There is a lot of jiggle, and I think that has something to do with some software configurations that they don't have just right. I just think it's an IPS at 90 or 120 hertz panel problem. I've never seen an IPS display at high refresh rates not do that, period. So I'd rather take a 60 hertz OLED any day of the week. And I think the OLED Mm -hmm. on the 4A is solid OLED. It's actually punches way higher than the $350 OLED should. So that's my take. But going back to the N10 5G, here are the things I like. Okay, there are a few things I like. The display, even though the jittery, I think 90 hertz, it's a good IPS panel. The battery life is insane. It's really good. It's really fantastic. So that's good. Stereo speakers. They're stereo speakers and they're, they're not great, but they're not horrible. They're definitely better than the mono speaker on the Nord. That is awesome. The headphone jack is nice. I don't need it, but it's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, micro SD support is nice. I don't need it, but it's nice. This has 128 base storage. That's not too bad. It, I could live with that. So I don't need the micro SD, but I think it's nice. And then finally, what was the third thing? 
that they did that hadn't been on a OnePlus in a while. A rear-mounted fingerprint sensor? Like, I don't mind the rear-mounted fingerprint sensor, no. but the one they used is not good. It's not that for me as much as it feels old-fashioned. Like, the, and the 4A has the same problem, and the 5, and the 4A 5G. For all the pixels, the modern pixels all have that problem. I I love the in mounted on the back because you reach in your pocket and you tap it. By the time the phone is out of your pocket, it's unlocked. But I feel that it kind of looks frumpy and old, and today it should be on the side. It should be on the power lock key. Lots of people have done that really well. Samsung probably done the best job at it with a bunch of their phones. Yeah, Samsung's done the best, but the, we've had a couple this year that have had it on the side, and, and it wasn't they, they yeah. haven't been good. The Poco phones have had it, um, and they simply haven't been good. But again, those have been budget devices as well, so they're using yeah. cheaper sensors. The Moto One 5G was pretty good was with okay, the yeah. sensor. Yeah. So anyway, I, I agree with you overall that like this is not a OnePlus phone. This 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 is a parts bin phone. Correct. It is an Oppo phone rebranded as, as a or BBK phone, whatever, rebranded mm-hmm. as OnePlus. The lack of alert slider. And the other thing that really vexes me, I wrote in my review, is the chin. It is so freaking big. Yeah, but that that's what you get from an IPS display. They're all No, this- I disagree. Look at the Poco X3 NFC in comparison. Also an IPS panel. Has a chin, yes. Doesn't have a monstrous chin. Yeah, I, there is a size difference there, but I, I don't think it's... Like, I think it's ridiculously big for a chin. I, I have not complained about bezels <laughs> or a chin on a phone in like three years, so I'm really? not even going to go there. It's since, ah. since HTC's phones that had the ridiculous chins. Other than that, I, I have not been complaining about those. Because honestly, I think bezels around the screen make the phone easier to use. From a, from okay, a usability well, standpoint, it's easier to use a phone that the screen's a little bit higher because you're, you can actually reach the I bottom. I don't mind bezels. I just like symmetry. And sometimes you can alleviate this is true. Symmetry is good. the IPS requirement by having maybe a top and bottom that are like, like optimize them a little more. And we're not seeing that. Like I think Poco is doing a way better job. I think the Mi 10T Lite that we're both reviewing is doing a better job. Mm-hmm. You know who's doing a really bad job when we'll talk about that with their chin and I'm going to totally knock them on their chin is the Nokia 8V 5G UW, the 8.3 variant for the US. There's an insane amount of chin. Yeah. Like, I cannot handle it. Like, and that's one of the things about the Nord N10 5G to me, between the rear mount fingerprint sensor and that massive chin, it feels like a phone from two years ago. And I, that's not a OnePlus phone for me. OnePlus is bleeding edge. Even mm-hmm. at that price point, it should be bleeding edge. And we've shown that they've shown they can do that with the Nord. And now the Nord, I think, is not a very good value proposition financially for OnePlus. I get it. It costs them a lot to make, and their profit margins are razor thin, I'm sure. And they have probably much bigger profit margins on the N10 5G, but it feels it. Like, the only thing that makes this phone remotely OnePlus worthy is Oxygen OS. It's a breath of fresh air. Except the issue that we found out this week. Well, yeah, let's get to that in a second. But I was just going to say, everything I threw at this phone ran mm-hmm. smoothly. It didn't run fast. It didn't feel snappy like a OnePlus phone. But it's smooth because of 90 hertz display and because of Oxygen OS. And Oxygen OS is still a very good experience compared to having some sort of Oppo, Vivo, other BBK phone interface or a Poco interface on there, in my opinion. But you're right that. I'll let you tell the story. Yeah, so we just found out this week that the OnePlus Nord N10 and the N100, which is the cheaper version of this phone, will only be getting one major 
Android update. And that Android update is going to be from Android 10, which is the software that the phone ships with, to Android 11. 11, which it should have shipped with out of the box. It should have shipped with out of the box because OnePlus shipped the OnePlus 8T, what, three weeks ago? And Mm -hmm. that phone was already running Android 11 out of the box. So not only are we only going to get one software update, but we're going to get the 2020 software update. And probably by the time it rolls around, it's going to be 2021. And then you can kiss your software updates goodbye. And OnePlus has staked its reputation on delivering exceptional updates for its phones. When it comes to versions of Android, they're always ahead of the competition as far as rolling out major Android releases. It's usually Pixel phones get it first. And then sometimes it's within that same week or a week later that the first OnePlus devices are being updated to the next version of Android, which has been awesome. It's been a little bit, a little bit slower this year, but they've staked their reputation on that. And they always deliver multiple like system updates to tweak the improvement of the device, kind of like Google does for its devices throughout the year as well, in addition to multiple years of security updates. Now we're only getting one major Android update and only two years of security updates when the industry standard across the board is three years of security updates for the companies that kind of stick to that game plan. So again, not a real OnePlus phone. Yeah, exactly. So look, for me, the display is good. Stereo speakers are nice. Battery life is fantastic. 30 watt charging is very nice to have at that price point. I don't need it, but it's nice. Again, I don't need it. Micro SD, I don't need it. It's nice. Headphone jack, I don't need it. It's nice. I could have done without these three things and have an OLED display and had a slightly better chip. Like I was expecting a Nord Redux that had slightly lesser specs, but we're really getting a completely different phone here that doesn't have a notification slider and the cameras are worse. I'm not going to get started on the lack of OIS on the main sensor. Yeah, but at at this price point, there's no one who does have OIS. But then you went to a worse sensor. Yes, this is true. So I'm halfway through recording a video of pros and cons on the Nord N10. And the cons come hard and heavy in the camera department. There are four cameras here, which we know this is simply so that they can check things off on the spec list so that, hey, this phone has four versus Yeah, I call them sticker cameras. They might as well be stickers. Yeah, Yeah, and honestly, the, the monochrome camera and the macro camera are two cameras on any smartphone Besides a high-end device that's using a really good macro camera, those are two cameras that should never be included. Save the $3 from each one of those cameras and invest the $3 of each of them into a better main sensor because it will make a world of difference. Because honestly, camera sensors aren't that expensive. They're a couple bucks each. But when your main sensor is $25, and then you have two $6 sensors, how about you save that and buy a you know a $33 main sensor and make it exceptional as opposed to crappy and then just have even crappier sensors down the board. It's yeah. ridiculous. And so so well, again, I expect a OnePlus phone to have OIS and it Nord did, and this does not. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I brought that up because it's like one of those things that really matters to me. But 
they could have done without OIS and still done kind of okay to meet that price point if they'd stuck with the Sony IMX586 48 yeah, megapixel sensor. Mega, yep. That's a really proven high quality sensor. Instead, they went with a brand new, completely unproven Omnivision OV64B sensor uh, without OIS. That's a 64 megapixel, but it's got 0.7 micron pixels instead of 0.8 micron. And so, you know, it's fine in daylight. In fact, I actually think that OnePlus software team has done a very good job uh, with that sensor considering it's a brand new sensor and they probably didn't have a huge amount of time to tune it. Overall, for daytime photos, this thing is good. It actually does slightly better zoom performance than the uh, Nord, the regular Nord because of more pixels to be able to play with. But in low light, it completely falls apart. Like it is so bad in low light. It is bad. Yeah. And so I, I went out last night and did my camera test samples and I was taking pictures uh, and com- I was comparing it with the Pixel 4a, which is oh, not God. a fair, fair <laughs> no. comparison at all. But it was ridiculously bad. Um, and yeah, it, it's one of those things where, you know, don't give us sensors that we're never going to use and are completely pointless and spend your money on the things that we are actually going to use on a regular basis. Yeah. And we will be happy with the results or yeah. not as pissed off because honestly, I'm <laughs> never, I'm never going to be mad if a manufacturer doesn't give me a macro camera and doesn't give me a crazy monochrome camera. I mean, when was the last time you actually took a black and white monochrome picture? Well, it turns out that the monochrome shots are actually not taken with that camera. If you go to monochrome mode, it's like the AT. It assists the main sensor to take the photo by using that monochrome sensor for light. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's the same the as... The output is still a, a 16 megapixel picture in this case. It's the same setup that Huawei was using when Correct. they introduced their, their the monochrome P9. sensor. Yeah, yep. so, but, but, but it captures the light information and it uses the monochrome sensor to yep. then inform the monochrome images. So it, it paints the 16 megapixel image with the monochrome data, yeah. Correct. So I want to wrap up because we have a lot more to talk about, but really quickly for me... This never settle model is over. Like there is no, you're settling 100% of the way. They settled and then some. This is not a OnePlus phone. This is not worthy of OnePlus. This is OnePlus has lost the plot. OnePlus has lost its mojo. Like how low can they go? I don't even want to think about what the N100 is going to be like. The good news is the N100 is less than half the price of this phone. Okay. So, well, I, so I, I think it's 140. 89 euro or 179 euro uh so it's extremely cheap so i'm not expecting a 720p display so i'm it's not going to be good by any means but it probably could be good compared to what else is in within that price segment honestly i haven't used a phone that cheap in a long time though ultimately that's the problem 50 euros 50 pounds more buys you a nord oh it's crazy vastly better so buy that and if you're in the u.s we have no point of reference because the nord was never sold here but i can guarantee you this is going to be a carrier special like a t-mobile phone at 350 dollars or 400 dollars, and it's not going to be as good as some of the f- other 400 dollar some of the samsung a series devices that has snapdragon 765s like the tcl 10 5g yep. like the uh, moto one 5g like the Revel 5G on T-Mobile, which is essentially a Moto 1 5G detuned, like the new LG K92 5G that looks awesome. Have you seen that? It's another Snapdragon 690 phone. 
It was announced by LG. That thing looks so good. It looks like, good. Cosmetically, now of course it's going to have LG software, but I think you know, you're right. The <laughs> Samsung Galaxy A51, A71, all of these phones, I don't think it's necessarily going to be very competitive in the US. And again, the only thing that still kind of maybe makes this a OnePlus phone is Oxygen OS. The rest is just parts been special. Very so, disappointing. So one last thing I'd like to point out. If you look at the back of the Nord N10 and you put your finger over the OnePlus logo in the middle of the phone, it looks exactly like a Samsung A71. The camera module is identical. Oh, yeah. Like the, the placement of all four sensors is identical, especially the flash as well. You're like, is this a OnePlus or is this a Samsung phone? It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's so weird. So yeah, folks, Ryan Hager at Android Police wrote a really good story today. I will try to link it in the show notes if I remember about how OnePlus has jumped a shark. And I think I agree with him. And I am very sad to say that on the show. I'm very feeling kind of emotional right now because honestly, OnePlus is just one of my darlings. And I really hate to see what's going on here. Up until the release of this phone, this has been an amazing year for OnePlus. It's been fantastic. This is this it just like stops. People using- were worried about the dilution of the brand as OnePlus started moving down market a little bit with the Nord originally. And they kind of proved it proved everybody wrong with the original Nord saying, hey, we can actually deliver a budget-friendly device still and without compromising too much on our, you know, core DNA. But then they go and release the N10 and the N100 and you're like, nope, that that ship sailed. And you know, I wanted to give them a chance with the N10 at least. I knew the N100 would not be my my thing. But the N10, I want to give them a chance. And man, look, it's the worst thing is that if you look at it in a vacuum, it's not a bad phone. No, but there's a lot of competition and you can't look at a phone Correct. in a vacuum. You can look at it in a vacuum. And it's the same with the AT, overpriced for what it is. I, I saw your review. I didn't want to get into that because I've covered the AT to death mm-hmm. on the show now. But it's the same thing. It's like fantastic phone in a vacuum, uh, put it next to the competition and it's starting out to be a harder sell, I- including competition from itself with the 8, right? Well, not just the 8. The 8 Pro, eight Pro. is yeah, on sale. And so it's only $50 more. And it's like ridiculous. Yeah. So with the 8T, for me, it was someone's looking at the 8T because they were considering the 8 and wanted to spend a little bit more to get a little bit extra phone. The difference, the delta between those three phones is so small that one of them should not be there. And that phone that shouldn't be there is the 8T. The only 8 I want to talk about is the Nokia 8V 5G UW. And I want to mention really quickly because I want to move on to the Apple stuff. Let's do it. I got a review unit. The embargo lifted an hour after the Nord, but because we got the review unit on Friday or something, there was no way I was going to be able to review it in time for anyone and certainly not even for myself. So I made an unboxing video, which you can find in the show notes. Check it out. This phone is an utter disaster and disappointment. I'm reviewing it right now and I do not know what Nokia was thinking. Why is it a disaster and disappointment? Because it costs $700 mm-hmm. and it is... No better than a OnePlus Nord. In fact, worse than a regular OnePlus Nord I'm talking about here. It's a Snapdragon 765G. All the really cool special Nokia-ness of it with the original, what it's based on, which is the Nokia 8.3 5G, was the whole concept was we're going to make the first 5G phone that's a world phone, like that works on 5G anywhere in the world. That's all gone here. Because this is optimized for Verizon. For Verizon only. And it has millimeter wave, which the other one doesn't have, which is fine. Like, don't get me wrong. Millimeter wave is nice and fast when you get it. But 
the price is the same, like the same high price as it was. It was already overpriced when it was just a sub six phone with the 8.3. And it was announced at like at MWC, this phone should have come out in April, May and been competitive for that price and then probably dropped down to a bargain bin price now to compete with all the other awesome Snapdragon 765 phones that exist today. Like, how are you going to buy this Nokia 8 V5G over a Pixel 5? Well, so same price as the Pixel 5, but then you start considering, how about the Pixel 4a 5G, which is a $500 phone with essentially the same specs? It's definitely more premium looking and yes. feeling than a 4A 5G. This is true. But it doesn't have OIS, which for a Nokia, pure view. You okay. need OIS at this price point. There is no excuse. It has a plastic mid-frame, mm-hmm. a Kevlar. It's nice. It's really nice plastic. It's essentially a OnePlus Nord. No, it, not even because it has an IPS panel with a massive chin. It doesn't yeah. have 90 hertz. It's a 60 hertz panel. It's worse than a OnePlus Nord, and that's a 450 euro phone. That's exactly what I'm saying. And it's, it's honestly, ridiculous. in my opinion, worse than a Pixel 5, or in some ways, than a Pixel 4a 5G. Although you have to get the millimeter wave version, which is $100 more, right? Remember, this is millimeter. Yep. Like- the, the millimeter wave tax. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I think you were on the pre brief that I was with Nokia talking about this phone. And I I raised the question of the price because they told us what the price was. And I I raised the question of, this is more expensive than competing devices. Why is that? Because we've seen other devices with Snapdragon 765s that are $100 to $200 cheaper here in the US with better specifications than this when you look at the other features. And they said, well, our customers like our value proposition that we offer with our devices but this isn't i i don't see the value proposition here and nokia hasn't built up the reputation especially in the u.s because it never had the reputation in the u.s of brand loyalty where people are going to come back simply for the nokia name they will for oneplus they will for Pixel. This thing is stillborn. It's dead. It's DOA. There's no way that even if you're a Verizon customer, no. you're going to buy this phone when the TCL exists with the same specs. Oh for yeah, four hundred bucks for four hundred bucks, like the same specs for a TCL phone. Like, and I think the TCL phone might actually have better cameras than this. I think so too. And the Pixel Five. I'm sorry to tell you, you can buy an unlocked Pixel Five that has millimeter wave, will activate on Verizon, costs the mm-hmm. same amount of price. You get all the freaking goodness. You get more RAM, you get more storage. Oh my God, the RAM and storage, 6 and 64? Are you kidding me? How could they do this? 6 gigs and 64 for $700? Yeah, it's it's bad. Uh, Forget it. Like, Nokia, you're drunk. Go home. Hey, it has a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack. It does. So does the Pixel 4a 5G. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of the Velvet, but the Velvet is roughly the same price, and it's, it's a much nicer phone. So much nicer, so much nicer, and I'm not even a fan of that device. And if you really want to go crazy and want to spend very little and get a premium phone with a Snapdragon 765G, not my favorite choice, but I would still buy it over the Nokia Moto Edge. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good phone. I mean, it has its quirks. And I'm not crazy about the software because it feels like it's seven years old at this point. But I'm so annoyed with Nokia right now. Anyway, I want to briefly touch on the fact that the iPhone 12 mini and Pro Max have been reviewed now. I will link to the Verge's review for better, for lack of a better option. There's many other options, but I like their reviews. They're pretty fair. I know you have a one 
uh, an iPhone 12 of some kind? Is it 12 or 12 Pro that you have? I have the 12. I wanted to get the mini, but it wasn't coming out yet. We've covered the 12 and the 12 Pro. So this is about the 12 mini and the 12 Pro Max. The, the takeaway I'm getting is that the mini is just exactly as awesome as the 12, but less battery life, which we expected. And of course, it's smaller, which is perfect for a lot of people. And it's mini. Right? Yeah. And then the Pro Max is the camera system. And it's a really big phone, and you, bigger than you think. And if you try it before you buy kind of thing. Um, anything that stands out really quickly for you about these two phones? Like for me, the camera system on the Pro Max with the in-body stabilization is, it seems that it does pay off and the quality is a little better. And it's interesting, right? I think it's interesting. So for, for me, it's kind of the comparison of the 12 mini being kind of like a Pixel 4a, where it's such a small device, it's pared down, but still excellent and exceptional in every way. Uh, you do get the battery life compromises that you get there, but you know, if with a device that small, you're going to have issues with battery life because right. the, the screen size to battery size, the ratios just don't work out. And this thing has millimeter wave, which is crazy. It's just crazy. And I, yeah. I think that's probably one of the reasons for the battery life. So like if you stick it on 4G and keep it there, you might actually do a little bit better than having it search for 5G and jumping between millimeter wave and, you know, everyone else's um, yeah. sub six networks and stuff like that. But for the 12 Pro Max, Honestly, like I don't see any other device this could be compared to besides the Galaxy Note 20 Ultra. Correct. This is a Galaxy Note 20 Ultra competitor. It is over the top as far as display goes, battery life goes, and also cameras as well. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I haven't used it yet, and I haven't seen any comparisons yet. I'm sure there's some coming out within the next day or two between the Note 20 Ultra and the, the 12 Pro Max. But I would say... You know, it, it really comes down to which camp are you in? Are you within a Android or the iPhone camp? And if you have all the money in the world to spend on the best phone available to you, that's the phone to get. Yeah. Um, but I don't think like I don't think the 12 Pro Max is transformational in any way. I think some people were expecting it to be above and beyond what we get out of the 12 and the 12 Pro. It is in some sense, but it's not for the price point. I don't think it really delivers um that much more substantial of an ex of an experience i mean i think it's a hundred dollars more than the pro it's worth it like if you can deal with its size get the pro max at this time like i think that but the size is ridiculous i mean that's the thing to me the ones to get are the mini if you want a really small phone if you're an old school iphone user you're trying to replace a really small iphone right or get the regular 12 because the, the difference between the 12 and the 12 pro you might as well get the 12 unless you absolutely need the telephoto and then at that point, if you buy the Pro, $100 bore buys you the Max, which gets you better imaging, a bigger battery, bigger f screen. To me, that's a plus. For some people, that's going to be a minus. But I feel like the 12 Pro regular is redundant now. Uh, that's a thing. Like for, for I, I think it does come down to size. And yes, at that point when you're spending over $1,000 on a phone, right. I, I think $100 really doesn't make that much of a difference. That's less than 10 percent mm -hmm. um so the price shouldn't be an issue for anybody considering the 12 pro or the 12 pro max uh, but the size definitely will and i, I think that's where yeah. for me i'm not a big phone person so for me the 12 pro max is 
too above big. and beyond. Just like I have yeah. the Note 20 Ultra sitting on my desk, but I I never use it. Because I love it, my 20 Ultra, my Note 20 Ultra. Oh my God. I do love it. I, I use it around the house when I'm playing games and stuff like that. But as soon as I'm leaving the house, I'm picking up a phone with a display that's less than six inches. I hear you. Uh, one last thing on these two phones, because you'll read the review yourselves, listeners, is that to me, there are a lot of people going like that. And actually, the reason I posted the Verge's review is because Nilai at uh, at the Verge, the editor-in-chief, good friend of mine from the days when I was at Engadget working with him, you know, went crazy over the top about how this is the best phone camera on the planet. And he's completely wrong. <laughs> like, I haven't tested the Pro Max, but I can tell you right now, looking at the samples, it's a freaking amazingly good camera. There's no it doubt. It is good. I, yeah, from what I've seen, it's good. But is it the best? I want to put it side by side with a P40 Pro and a P40 Pro Plus. I want to put it side by side with a Note 20 Ultra because I can guarantee you the Note 20 Ultra telephoto will eat its lunch. Uh, maybe not the main sensor. Or the new Mate. The Mate 40 Pro, I have one. It's good. Um, it's definitely identical in terms of main sensor and, and, uh, and telephoto to the P40 Pro. But the ultra-wide is a little detuned instead of 40 megapixel pixel binned sensor. It uses mm-hmm. a 20 megapixel sensor now. Although I found that the color science is better and I enjoy taking ultra wides more with the Mate 40 Pro than the P40 Pro. But technically on paper, that ultra wide is a step down, right? On yeah. the Mate 40 Pro. Well, but I mean, we all we all know that megapixels don't tell the whole story. No, and... no, but it's interesting how, you know, like Neelai just went nuts about, I'm like, come oh, on, yeah. dude. Like, <laughs> Well, and I, I don't think the, I don't, when was the last time The Verge reviewed a Huawei device? I think it's been a while, so. Yeah, but I don't blame them, you know. I mean, yeah. it's a tough proposition. Well, it's not yeah. like you can buy it anyways, right? Exactly. All right, let's talk Apple Silicon Macs real quick. Three Macs were released with the M1 chip, which is the first Apple Silicon chip specifically built for Macs. So what stands out on this chip to me is that it's based basically, it's very similar to the A14, but cranked up a notch. It has RAM built in to the chip itself. So eight gigs or 16 gigs are your choices. You have to buy that and check the right box when you order. It's not even soldered on the board. It's in the in chip. In the chipset, which is crazy. Just like they do with their phones, which is insane. The M1 is now available on the MacBook Air for $9.99, the MacBook Pro 13 for $12.99, and the MacBook Pro 13 still exists also as the Intel version on their website. So you can buy one or the other. And the M1 chip is uh, not cooled with a fan on the macbook air but it's cool on the macbook pro so there's a bit more overhead potential for performance there and then there is also a mac mini with the also cooled down with a fan m1 and if you look at the chassis of that mac mini when they showed it on the screen i've taken apart many mac minis because i've owned many of them to update them Mm -hmm. with new hard drives and ssds and stuff they were packed. This thing is almost completely empty. <laughs> like half of the sh- space inside the chassis is being used up by the, the computer itself. It's so small. But yes, there's a Mac Mini available with the M1 chip, but they co- they're also keeping the Intel Mac Mini on the, on the market as well. Mm-hmm. So that's basically the takeaway. And I'm super stoked because the performance, I know that n- nobody's got their devices yet to do benchmarks, but you know, Apple put a lot of numbers up that weren't, you know, comparing anything to anything because they wouldn't give us 
what they were comparing against. Like, they wouldn't actually give us hard facts. Apparently, they did in the press release in, like, page 17. Okay, but my point is, it's a lot of hyperbole with Apple often, and I'm not saying that oh, to mean it's true, right? So, the point is that there's a lot of people out there, especially like the older school Intel PC reviewers, uh, that are, like, going, you're nuts, Apple, go home. But I think they're gonna they're in for a very bad surprise. Like this thing is these things are gonna blow up anything that's a core i5 or core i7 right now. I think we do need to be a little bit skeptical because yes, you can talk about overall performance, but when you start looking at okay, half of the applications that you run are still gonna run in emulation until app developers are able to rewrite all of their programs to work with. That's just a compile button away. You know that, right? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, we all driver support and all whole lot of others. It, it's not a compile button away. There's hours and hours and sometimes months and months well, of work. Well, it's more of a compile button away than if you're a Windows developer. Let me put it this way. Yeah, but so, I mean, we, we still don't know because applications are always optimized for different chipsets and you know just you know running something on an arm processor is different than running it on what we were using in the past so it, it's one of those things where yes theoretically this could be exponentially better but i don't think we're going to get exponential improvements in performance right out of the gate i think it's going to be a year before those numbers actually come to fruition once applications are up to I'm a little bit more optimistic because I lived through the last transition and emulation was extremely good. And also because Apple always ships all their native apps, which is what most people use out of the box, they're going to ship them ARM optimized. So like even Final Cut and iMovie and all the things that are a little bit less, like more niche in terms of not mainstream apps, like I'm, of course, Safari is going to be, you know, updated, but mm -hmm. I'm talking about they, they're, they're updating everything. Logic's being updated. So I think that, yeah, but know, like, so like for creative professionals who use the Adobe suite, I don't think the Adobe suite's going to be updated on day one. Not on day one, but I think it's coming and that's why they can still buy an Intel Mac. But the point is that there's a lot of creatives out there that use Final Cut. And for those people, I think the performance is going to be off the charts. And, and that's because... You know, mobile chips scaled up to laptops, or in this case, it's a completely designed essentially to be a laptop chip. You have all these subsystems for doing all of this stuff like encoding and decoding video and that you don't find on a general purpose, you know, chip like a, a Core i5 or i7, you know? This is true, but then I wasn't following the news too closely. How are things working for... GPUs because I saw that external GPUs, GPUs are built in, but like external GPUs are not going to be supported. So anyone not on this chip, anyone who's into 4K and 8K video editing, who relies on you know an NVIDIA GPU in order to push you know the muscle through in order to get those workforces. You mean Premiere users? Yeah, they will wait for Adobe to optimize for those GPUs that are built into the to the M1, which on paper kick every other GPU's butt on the planet short of like buying a $3,000 video card. Yes, those people will have to wait. But I mean, honestly, the the new, the brand new GPUs that have just come out from NVIDIA and AMD are exponentially better than they were last year. And there's no way that Apple's going to be able to perform with that for, for serious, like for serious, not like you're 
casual creator like me, but like for you know professional creators. Yeah, for people running DaVinci Resolve and for people yeah. running Premiere, they're going to have to wait. But I think that people running Final Cut, which is a big chunk of really professional video editors, it's going to be a faster experience than on an Intel Mac right now because it's completely done in-house by Apple. Everything is perfectly vertical. Yeah. Those GPUs look really good on paper, but they're not going to be as good as, you know, an RTX whatever from NVIDIA that just came out. But I think we're going to be surprised. That's what I'm saying. Could be. Because also for video editing, it's not just the GPUs that matter. No, it's, it's the custom decode encode modules that are inside these chips, right? Because correct, you know, they but... say that you can edit ProRes 4K on the MacBook Air without a stutter. And that has never happened on a MacBook Air, never mind a, even a cheap MacBook Pro. Yeah. Well, but just for, for those who know and use Premiere, uh, oh, yeah. just, just within this last year, Adobe rolled out an update that took video rendering times and based off of your GPU, reduced video rendering times by 50%. Yeah, and that's really a big deal. And sure. that's a huge, so like for my videos, even though I don't do anything super complex, my video exports went from 15 to 20 minutes down to four to five minutes where I would have to go downstairs, take a little break and come back in a little bit to get my <laughs> video when it's done to let me write an email quick. And by the time my email's done, my video's done rendering. rendering. You know, I, I hear you. I think, I think Adobe uh, users are going to have to wait to see what happens. Yeah. They did show um, that Lightroom was coming. And Photoshop, I think. So, I mean, obviously- Yeah, Lightroom and Photoshop, I think, are going to do, and Illustrator, are, are, I think, can definitely take advantage of the M1 chip really well. But again, this is on Adobe's. This is Adobe's problem. Adobe needs to get on with the program. They took them a while last time to do the last transition to get in the program, and they got slaughtered by the creatives. I'm sure they've learned their lesson, you know? Yeah, we'll have to see. But that's the thing. Adobe's a big powerhouse in the creative world. And I, I think a lot of people will simply wait to see what Adobe does before upgrading. Oh, absolutely. But for the average person who buys a MacBook Air for the college, using college right now. Oh, yeah, they don't care. With all, all the built-in native apps that Apple will have optimized for ARM uh, for their silicon. I think that they're not even going to feel any difference. In no, fact, they're, they're going to feel a huge improvement. And we're not just talking performance. The other thing is battery life. Yeah, I battery mean, did you see those numbers? Huge. Like 20 hours on a charge. I mean, everyone's I talking about Chromebooks being, you know, being able to get 10 <laughs> bat, ten hours of battery life. I'm like, you know, yeah. I, I think everyone just got a huge wake-up call. Crazy. All right, a couple of more things before we wrap up. One is that we both have a Xiaomi Mi 10T Lite, as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And I've been using mine for a little bit. It's basically a Poco X3 NFC where they took the Snapdragon 732 chip out and they put a Snapdragon 750G 5G chip in, right? Basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, the screen is the same. I think the build quality of the phone is a little bit better. I agree. The camera bump looks very similar, although I did like the cross layout of the, yeah. of the uh, thing in the back before, but now it's more of a square layout. And the colors aren't as funky. But um, honestly, I'm pretty impressed so far. It feels really nice. I've been know? enjoying the phone. Like it, it, I, I think there's some tweaks to the software. It is running different, a different build of the software. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's it's very similar, but I think the software on this device is 
more fine-tuned for the hardware and I'm getting slightly better performance out of it. I mean, it is technically a faster chip. So th- this yeah. is the first phone that we've ever tested with a 750G. So, mm-hmm. you know, is this this chip slots right between the Nord's 765G and the Nord N10 5G 690. This is the new 5G chips in the 7 series that's the cheaper 5G 7 series chip. Yeah, and I, I was actually looking at performance differences between this and the 765G and it's like less than 5% performance difference. You can't even tell the difference unless you're running benchmarks. So anyone who's like the 765G has gotten huge praises across the board this year. And this chipset here is just as good. And uh, just so you know, since I, for those of you who have maybe been don't remember, I reviewed the Poco X3 NFC for Android Police a few weeks ago. Go check that out. Uh, My camera experience was pretty damn good on the Poco X3 NFC, and I expect that this the camera seems to carry over, so I expect mm-hmm. the performance to be pretty good as well. What's been your take so far? Uh, my take's pretty good. I actually did a camera comparison between this and the Pixel 4a, and it performs really good. Um, what I found with the X3 NFC was that loading Gcam onto that phone is exceptional and makes the phone that much better. I haven't tried it out with the Mi 10 T Lite. That name just gets me every time. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard name to pronounce. Mi 10 T Lite. Yeah. Uh, but I, if you're a fan of loading up the Gcam on your phone, because I know there's a huge following of the Gcam camera app uh, within the dev communities, uh, I, I would expect the performance improvement to be just as good as what it was on the X3 NFC. Cool. I'm uh, looking forward to using this for more. I'm going to be reviewing it, folks. I think probably in a couple of weeks or so, expect a written review somewhere. Uh, so stay tuned for that. And the last thing on the list, well, there's actually a couple of things. We we skipped on one of the things earlier, which was that the, and I'm just going to mention it, the Nord SE rumor. There is a rumor for a, a version of the Nord, the good Nord, uh, with a 65 watt fast charging like the OnePlus 8T. So this would be called the Nord SE or special edition or super edition or whatever. It's a rumor right now. Take it with a grain of salt, but maybe we will get this in the U.S. Maybe. Can I dream? We can dream. I don't know. But honestly, like I use the 65 watt charging on the 8T. Like it's it's super fast, but who cares? I I, I told them during my briefing, I was like, you should have just given it wireless charging. I'm just saying it's the opportunity for us to get this Nord in the U.S. potentially, which is exciting me. That's all, right? That is true. So the last thing, because I'm going to skip the Huawei news and keep that for next week. The last thing is that Google Photos is going to be losing its free unlimited storage starting in June 2021. Oh, Google, you disappoint us so. Uh, You know, I was expecting this day to come eventually. I I have been a huge advocate of Google Photos. Everybody I talk to, I tell them, do you have Google Photos installed? No, go install it. Even iPhone users. This is the number one app for storing and backing up your photos. And I still think it will be once they get rid of the unlimited uh, high quality uploads for videos and photos. But it's it's sad to see that we'll have to start paying. And even at the cheapest option for 100 gigs, it's only two bucks a month. I mean, it's not that much. It's a lot cheaper than what Apple charges for it's storage for iCloud. Uh, but still, two bucks is two bucks more than free. Yeah. Um, but as as far as the service goes, it's it's great. It's only gotten better over time. 
Uh, it's we knew this day was going to be coming eventually. I mean, the fact that Google's Pixel phones weren't getting unlimited storage with full resolution images, original resolution images. I think they stopped that with the Pixel Four last year. Uh, yeah, kind of, kind of was the marking that it was going to be eventually coming to an end. I'm not surprised. Absolutely not. It makes sense, but at the same time, I'm still disappointed. You so know? there is a there is a workaround for this. Oh, if you own any Pixel phone, keep your Pixel phone, take your photos, load them onto the Pixel phone, and upload them, and they will be uploaded at the high resolution. <laughs> and so this this is what I did. I because of that, when they were still doing for the Pixel. The original, pic, I think it was the Pixel 2 that launched with it, with the full resolution. I loaded up 10 years of actual <laughs> digital camera photos and wow. videos, and I would do them in batches to my phone and hit the backup button. So I backed up all my photos going back to 2004 at full nice. resolution. So keep a Pixel phone around and you'll get unlimited photo backup for the rest of your life. Just don't do it from any other device that you might be using as your main phone. There you go, folks. You've heard it here first. It's your workaround. I, I need to write up that article. <laughs> Definitely. Please do. We need to wrap up. So do you want to tell folks where they can find you on the internet? Uh, on the internet, you know. <laughs> so, uh, Thanks, Nick. You can find me and all my work on fandroid.com, covering Android news and reviews, or else you can find me, find me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Nick M. Gray. And you should definitely check out Fandroid, folks. Uh, awesome YouTube channel. Nick is good people. And you know where to find me, folks, on the internet. I'm at Tankerl. That's T-N-K-G-R-L. Like the comic book character, just drop the vowels. T-N-K-G-R-L on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter is where you should go to comment about this show. If you want to discuss the podcast with me, go to Twitter. Tell me what you think. Ask me the questions you want to ask. Correct me, whatever. Instagram is where you'll find pretty pictures of phones, pretty pictures taken with phones I'm reviewing, all that good stuff. We have a couple of YouTube channels for you to check out. YouTube.com slash Mobile Tech Podcast is where you'll find unboxings, reviews, hands-ons, etc. Uh, mostly about phones and earbuds, headphones, that kind of stuff. And then we've got a new channel, Mobile Tech More. So it's YouTube.com slash Mobile Tech More. You should subscribe to that. It's a new channel. Your subscription would be appreciated. It is all the extra stuff we get like air purifiers, blenders, like we got a USB Type-C portable blender. It's freaking great. You know, robot vacuums, all that stuff is going to go there. So we're kind of just getting started with that. So please like, subscribe, and all that good stuff on the YouTube channels. Then the podcast itself lives at mobiletechpodcast.com. That's the URL. There's an RSS feed there. But if you want to use your standard podcast app or on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Spotify, pretty much everywhere good podcasts can be found. If your app lets you rate or review the show, please consider doing that. It really helps. So I just want to put that out there. And then also we have a donate link in the show notes. It's a PayPal link. Check it out. If you can help the podcast by donating some money, please do so. I certainly would appreciate it. And then I want to thank our sponsor, Audible. Audible has been with us since the very early days of this show as a longtime sponsor. You can help them by helping us. 
by uh, checking out the special deal they have. And that's basically a 30-day free trial and you get to keep a book at the end, which is cool. The URL for that is audibletrial.com slash mobile tech. That's audibletrial.com slash mobile tech. So Audible, it's an audiobook platform. If you love to read as much as I do, but maybe you don't want to read with your eyes, you want to listen with your ears, they're your ticket. They have an incredible selection of books. Some of them are super epic long, 12-hour odysseys. I love it. It's like you can really immerse yourself into this audio experience if you're driving, like you're delivering packages all day or something. You have to keep an eye on the road. You can just listen to the shows instead of reading them, which is really cool. A lot of books are read by the authors and yeah, generally a great platform. And if you can help them, you will help us with that special deal if you become an Audible subscriber. AudibleTrial.com slash mobile tech. I want to thank again Audible for being a longtime sponsor of the show. And thank you, Nick. And of course, Finbar for both being my guests this week. I appreciate you having me back. It's always a pleasure. Fantastic. We'll definitely have you back on the show soon. And folks, we'll have another show next week. So stay tuned for that. Until then, cheers, everybody. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.